It might be raining outside, but it is fire inside. Come on, church. Thank you. Thank you. Let's pray. God, thank you for your goodness. Thank you for the power of your resurrection. That we are a new creation. That we can walk in newness of life. Thank you for your death, your resurrection, for our baptism, for our new life in Christ. I pray today as we open your word that it would be that sword of the Lord that it speaks of that would divide even our deepest joints and marrow and the spirit of our heart. Holy Spirit, would you have your way in these next few moments? We love you. And everybody said, Amen. In chapter 2 of the Screwtape Letters, authored by C.S. Lewis, Screwtape is writing to his apprentice, Wormwood, and he writes this in regards to Wormwood's patient becoming a Christian. Here's just a short portion of the letter. It says, My dear Wormwood, I note with grave displeasure that your patient has become a Christian. There is no need to despair. Hundreds of these adult converts have been reclaimed after a brief sojourn in the enemy's camp and are now with us. And here it is. All the habits of the patient, both mentally and bodily, are still in our favor. The book of Romans, as written by Paul the Apostle, inspired by God the Holy Spirit, is a sermon. And that sermon has a goal. The goal is discipleship. The goal is to look like Jesus. But to get to the third section of description in chapters 12 through 16, we said last week that we would first need to walk through the first two sections. Section one in chapters one through three, a diagnosis, and we will land squarely back in the middle of the diagnosis of the human condition today. Section two, though, chapters four through eleven are deliverance, and I cannot wait till we get to that. But we must do the hard work of walking through the diagnosis. I do believe Lewis, when writing screw tape letters, and when he wrote that particular portion of chapter two, had a similar crisis in mind that Paul the Apostle did when he wrote, as we studied last week, many people claiming to be wise, come on, became fools. Or perhaps James, the brother of Jesus, when he wrote that we ought to be doers of the word, not simply hearers only. What does it mean to be a Christian in the 21st century United States of America by name, but with no life to match it? Must there be fruit, right? I think one of my favorite 
ways to think about it is if it's God's grace that has gone in, it will certainly find its way out. Super important. What does it really mean to say you're a Christian but have no evidence? I don't think that Jesus ever had that kind of following in mind. If we just consider Jesus' words about what it would look like and what the cost of discipleship would be, he would say things like this, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. He would say, daily pick up your cross and follow me. Faith alone can save, and I want to be clear, and we're going to get to that in deliverance. But saving faith is never alone. In chapter 1, we heard Paul out on the human condition as seen in the world and in creation. Namely, our sinful nature. And when we come to chapter 2, I don't know about you, but because I know deliverance and description is coming, this felt like a surprising turn to me in chapter 2. And it's certainly influenced by the reading and the sermons I've heard in the past. And I tried to come to chapter 2 and study it this week with fresh eyes. And it felt different this week for me. There's an emphasis that Paul puts in certain places in chapter 2 that I want us to zero in on. And I want us to consider for our life. Lest we be like... Wormwood's patient who declared that they were following Jesus and yet found the habits of our heart to be no different than they were. Amen? We don't want to be in that place and we certainly don't have to. The declaration of Scripture is that you can walk in a new way of life in the power of the Spirit. So what I want to do is just want to read Romans chapter 2 in its entirety. I'm going to read the first half. And then I'll ask you to stand for the second half. In honor of the reading of God's word. If you don't have a Bible. It'll be on the screen for you. Chapter 2 of Romans starts this way. Therefore. You. Somebody lift up your voice and say me. Have no excuse. O oh man. Every one of you who judges. We established last week. That that is all of us. For in passing judgment on one another, you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O oh man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume upon the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be Revealed. If you weren't here last week and you're struggling with that verse, that's okay. I invite you to struggle with it. It is a struggle. 
You can go back and listen to what we talked about last week and where the good news is found in that. Verse 6, he will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience in well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil. The Jew first, and also the Greek. But glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good. The Jew first, and also the Greek. For God shows no partiality. And then if you'll stand with me for the second half, we touched on those verses last week. So we want to add this in for today. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. For when Gentiles do not have the law, by nature, do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them, while their conscience also bears witness. On that day, when according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men, By Christ Jesus. And therein lies the good news. Amen. But if you call yourself a Jew. And rely on the law. And boast in God. And know his will. And approve what is excellent. Because you are instructed from the law. And if you are sure that you yourself. Are a guide to the blind. A light to those who are in darkness. An instructor of the foolish. A teacher of children. Having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth. You then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law dishonor God by breaking the law. For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed. Among the Gentiles because of you. For circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law. But if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then he who physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code. And circumcision, but break the law. For no one who is a Jew, this is important, for no one who is a Jew, who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly. And circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. Amen? You can be seated.
The surprising turn for me when I was reading this again this week is the apparent dogmatic approach to works. If you have listened to any preaching and teaching on Romans, the vast majority of it will hammer people in Romans 1 and 2 and then go straight to the end of the book (laughs) because that's the good part. But I think we have to sit with this. We have to ask ourselves the questions. The expectation of the law. I think the Lutherans gave us a great thing when they said God has two words. Law and gospel. And the law serves a function. I think Luther was the one who called it a hammer. It is God's law. It is when you read these words and you recognize My life does not measure up to what it's supposed to. And I think the invitation that I want to make to you is that even on my best days, even on the days where I do the pastoral things that you need me to do, (laughs) they're evil. Because in the hardness and impenitence of my heart, There's always something lurking behind, looking for a pat on the back or recognition or something that would make it about me and not Jesus. And I think you and I, we could just we could just chase those trails and we could we could recognize the hardness of our own hearts, couldn't we? I don't think we would have to try very hard to find that because we're human. And Paul just over and over and over here builds the case that if you are going to earn your righteousness by your works, then you have to earn your righteousness by your works. And he beats that drum over and over and over again. Especially in verse 6 where he says, He will render to each one according to his works. But the flip side of that is incredibly important. I had a teacher once tell me that anywhere you see God's command, his imperative is not far. Anywhere where you say where you hear do, you don't have to look far to hear done. Are you tracking with me? So in verse 6 when it says God's going to judge you according to your works. Do (laughs) the hammer of the law. Do your works display your righteousness. It is not far to get to verse 16. When according to the gospel, God's second word, God will judge the secrets of men by Christ. Why is that so significant? Because if you were to fast forward to the deliverance section, and we're going to do this each week because we don't want to lose that view. Because Paul sent this letter, this sermon, and they would read the whole thing at once. And so we have to keep the whole thing in view as we read every word. It all goes together. It's all really important. Because what Paul's going to do in Romans 7 is he's going to say that. He's going to say, I know who I'm supposed to be. I know what the law calls me to be, but wretched man that I am, 
I do the things that I don't want to do. I don't do the things that I want to do. Oh, wretched man that I am. And then he says this, who will deliver me from this body of death? You ever been there? I'm there constantly. (laughs) Just, can we just be real about that? Can you be honest about that in church today? Can we just drop the facade? That how many days do we get up and do we say, I'm going to follow Jesus today. And then your kids wake up. Come on, somebody. Can I get an amen in church today? And then you're like, oh, I'm still married and I acted like a turd yesterday. So, got to deal with that. Why are you laughing so hard? She's like, you said turd in church. (laughs) Welcome to Redeemer City Church. (laughs) The unpolished, gospel-centered ministry in Tampa. (laughs) It's real though, isn't it? Don't you just identify with what C.S. Lewis was pointing out? Like, he's putting, he's putting a visual to what Satan and his demons are doing. I just, I feel so convicted, like, are the demons even worried about me? <laughs> are they like, they're like, that, don't worry, he'll fall, just a minute, just give him a minute. And he's tall, so it's gonna, it's gonna hurt. God will judge according to the works, and yet, I think it's important here, uh, like when I was studying this this week, almost every theologian and commentary writer on this passage was highly concerned by who is Paul writing to here? And I think we should be concerned by it because I think it's so easy to read Romans 1 and 2 be like, man, what a world we live in. What a wretched world we live in. And it is (laughs) like we can admit that. But Paul's inviting his Christian audience in Rome to listen in on a hypothetical conversation he's having with Jewish religious leaders. The ones who would walk people either away from or toward Jesus. And he right again just pointedly reminds us Paul envisages as his hypothetical listener not just a pagan moralist but a moralizing Jew. Super important that we understand that because what does that do? It levels the playing field. It doesn't give us permission to look at the world who's not at church today and say, bad. (laughs) No, no, no. Paul spends all of chapter 2 unraveling, even for those of us that are following the rules. We're unable to keep the rules. And some of you lean that way and you're a rule keeper and you're like, Mitch, I just need you to give me the seven things I need to do to be the guy who isn't on Wormwood's list. Okay, just give me the seven things and I'm going to get after it. And then there's others of you who are like, yeah, amen, brother. I don't even keep keep the rules. I don't even try. I try to break them, actually. (laughs) And so Paul is just. Bringing all of us, it's like I just imagine him like a dad getting on his knee and just corralling all the kids, you know, like Susie struggles with her attitude, Billy struggles with not caring about anything and never trying, and you know, you just fill in the guy. He's bringing all the kids into the circle and saying, hey, whether you struggle with the rules or you struggle with breaking the rules, neither one of them are going to lead you. To where Jesus is taking you. Because you're not capable of 
doing that. And I don't make a big deal out of this to bore us today, but simply to make sure that before we get to the deliverance section, that we are fully wrapping our heads around the case that Paul is building. I want to give you two lists this morning before we spend some time in prayer. Because I think these are important for us to consider as we just sit with what Paul says here in Romans 2. Before he gets to the end and talks about the praise that comes from God. I think there's four tensions here that we feel in our conscience. When you look at Romans 1 and 2, you can't get out of Romans 2 without making the list. You just can't. He brings all of us into it. And and I think that you should feel it in your conscience. You should feel like, I'm on that list. I'm not as good as I hope to do. And then I think there's a second one that we see in creation. You know, Scripture even talks about that the whole creation groans with anticipation. We're going to get there in Romans. But there, there, there are four tensions at least. These are just the four off the top of my head that we feel in our conscience and see in creation. Number one, something has gone wrong. We, we, we use the language of brokenness here at Redeemer City Church because every single one of us, something is wrong. It's something's wrong in me, something's wrong in the way that, like Romans 7 says, I can't get around the corner to do all the things that I know I'm supposed to do. What is going on? I've been a Christian for how many years and I, I just, I still get angry at people when they cut me off. Or whatever it is for you, I still go grab that substance, or I still get on the computer, or I still, whatever it is for you, whatever your vice is, why? There's something wrong. We could then go number two, and we could step outside of our own heart and say, there's something globally wrong in the world. To to look at what's happening in the Middle East right now. Between Israel and Palestine. To look what's happening between the Ukraine and Russia. Both places where we have brothers and sisters in Christ. Living a very, very different reality than we are. Something is wrong. And so it leads us to number three. Something needs to be done to fix it. I mean, how so many of you are doers by nature. And I can't, I can only imagine what runs through your head when you see that and you think something. Somebody do something. Right? And we look at our government and the governments around the world and they're like, why? It's, what century are we living in? We haven't gotten past this. We're still doing it. And so it leads us to recognize that we're not going to be able to fix it. And so we simply ask the question, someone needs to do something To stop all the evil, the unrighteousness, and the injustice. You see, what is so encouraging to me about Romans chapter 2 is that for all the talk of God's wrath and what we don't like about that, if you will consider those four tensions, you have to come back and say, I'm glad somebody is not happy about the things that are happening in our world and that that somebody... That evil makes him angry and there is a day coming where he can make it all right. 
You see, even in Romans 2, there's good news that God is going to judge the secrets of men by Christ. And so what is the difference that God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance? It's just good news that I hang on to that I don't understand all four tensions. I'm not sure I even have my head totally wrapped around Romans 2. But what I do know is that we have a good father who sent his son to right the wrongs that I see literally everywhere in me and around the world. And we need that hope. Because somebody has to be able to take those problems and solve them. But again, here's the problem. Even in feeling those tensions... There is a universal human longing for righteousness. There is. Now that definition of what is right is very different depending on where you are in the world. So we we acknowledge that. But let's just bring it into Redeemer City Church. Let's bring it into our own hearts. Is it not easier for all of us to see the sin in someone else and not see it in us? Isn't there an invitation here in Romans 2 to look at yourself and say, maybe I need to try to not see everyone else's sin this week and let's just work on mine. Right? The the scriptures talk about it in many places. One of the great illustrations is that you would pull the beam out of your own eye before you worry about the toothpick in somebody else's. Oh, no amens today. Surprising. I'm up here confessing my sins to you and you won't even give me an amen. Couldn't hear me. (laughs) Couldn't hear me. I, I, I hear that. So what's the practical like outcome of that then? I want to give you another list. Then we're just going to pray. All this bad news needs some good news. What's the what's the outcome of us constantly seeing the sin in other people and not in ourselves? What what happens there? What happens when Romans two is just happening? I think there's ten dangers. Let me say it to you this way: There's ten dangers at least, and I'm sure you could come up with more. I'm sure I could. But I think there's at least ten dangers when sinners sit in God's seat. Okay, am I making sense? That if God's in wrath going to judge evil, but we usurp that and we sit in the seat and we judge people, I think there's ten problems with that, ten dangers in that, ten ways that Wormwood would be encouraged that your habits have not yet been broken. Number one, autonomy. We love the word autonomy. I like to be in authority but not under authority. Authority is like a bad word in our culture. But I want you to know that in Scripture, authority is a thing. And it's good for you, and it's good for me, it's good for us to be under God's authority. That does not need to be scary today. It is good news for all of us that we would sit under God's authority. Number two, pride. I was thinking about this this week, like, 
when I see the sin in somebody else, what is happening there? It's just this underlying belief that people should be more like me. Like, why am I prone when I see something happening? Be like, well, I told them. Well, I said. Or it'll be like some global crisis. You know, if I, I what I would do. <laughs> you know, and then we make jokes like, oh, we're sure we're solving the world's problems. You know, whatever. But like, those became cliches for a reason, didn't they? There is a, there's an inherent pride, right? And James unpacks this beautifully if you want to spend some time with James this week, unpacking the unbridled tongue and the dangers of it. I mean, who among us isn't in that? Number three, war. Not like Ukraine, but war in our heart, right? I want to win for my cause and I want to defend my reputation. It's one of the hardest things when somebody wrongs you to just not, not just step back in and let it rip. You know, like we say in sport, let it rip, tater chip, right? Like, it's just, we're taught that from a young age, like, if you're wronged, you retaliate. It's deep. We disciple that into our kids, we disciple that into ourselves, we do it all the time. Number four, hypocrisy. This is my favorite. Law for you, grace for me. Right? If you do something wrong, you better shape up. If I do something wrong, man, I just need grace. (laughs) Number five, deceit. To rename whatever the category is of my sin. Number six, here's a good one, blame shift. To excuse my sin, I'm just a victim of something. I win, I earned it, I lose, you cheated. (laughs) Number seven, a character attack. To attack somebody else's character. To declare the whole of who they are by a mistake when in reality we are all living like that. Number eight, negativity. Do you ever just stop and pay attention to what just choosing positivity does to the people around you? Or maybe I could say it this way. Choosing negativity, what does that do to the people around you? I'm really guilty of this one. But listen, we, we have to wallow in this for a long time to just understand just how magnificent Romans chapter 8 is going to be. Like I think Paul just is building this case for three or four chapters because I think we think we're not as bad as we are. <laughs> now there's actually a lot of good in there. And there is, but it comes from Jesus. It comes from being made in the image of God. It comes from being given a vocation as human beings in the world. To be on mission with Jesus, to be his ambassadors, God making his appeal through us. Like there's so much good to be done, there's so much good to be had, so much good to experience. Every, James says, every good and perfect gift comes from the Father above. Man, there's so much good and beauty and life and hope and peace and joy and happiness everywhere. But it comes from the Father. 
And so we need to be aware. Number nine, self-righteousness. And then number ten, an unholy alliance. I think this is important. An unholy alliance that would recruit others to join me in whatever it is that I'm fighting for. So many things we could consider. But I want to bring you all the way to verse 29. And remind you that in spite of us, God is working. That in spite of us, God is good. And to bring it full circle, whether you struggle with the rules or whether you struggle with breaking the rules, I want you to listen to verse 29 one more time. But a Jew, in other words, one who's been transformed by God, is one inwardly. And circumcision, which is what set the Jewish people apart from other nations, is a matter of the heart. But look at this. Do not miss this. Or chapter 2, you'll just go home and you'll cry. (laughs) Look at this. By the, what? Spirit. By the Spirit. Not by the, what? The law. Yeah, the letter of the law. His praise is not from man, but from God. What is the invitation to good news here? That by the power of the Spirit of God, you actually can live in the habits of grace. By the Spirit of God, not by the letter of the law. But make no mistake, you can't do it apart from the Spirit. And the beauty of that is that you don't need the approval or the praise or the recognition or the accolades that any other human being will give you for following Jesus. You don't need it. See, one of the things that we struggle with so much is the fact that we need the approval of people. And Paul just over and over and over again and finally just says, you don't need the praise of man when you have the praise of God. So by the Spirit, not by the letter, that inward change can take place. And listen, we're going to get to the rest of Romans and it's glorious. But I do think there's an invitation for us here this morning. That as we consider Romans 2... Romans 1, the wrath and judgment of God, the kindness of God that leads to repentance. Just the invitation for us to consider our ways. To consider the inward posture of our heart. Am I following Jesus? Are we following Jesus? Are we just doing our own thing? And to just afresh be reminded That for those of you who are in Christ, that your sins are forgiven. To just be blown away by the fact that despite 
the condition that Romans 1 and 2 says we are in by the Spirit of God through Jesus' work on the cross and resurrection. I am free. Wow. If you're not a Christian today, things are that bad. But they can be that good. The scripture is very clear, and we'll get to this too in Romans. It's very clear that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that he rose from the dead, the scripture says you will be saved. You know what? It's so simple in that regard, but it's so difficult in the regard that when that takes place in your life, Jesus comes in and makes all things new. And so the invitation this morning for all of us is just to consider that, to consider the posture of your heart. Consider where it is that perhaps you are blind to your own sin. So I'm going to ask the band to come back up and they're going to just play some beautiful music and I just want it to rest over your heart. And I want to give you some real time to pray. You know, for some of you, this will be your only moment of stillness all week. <laughs> it's by nature of the beast. I want to make sure you have that moment. So as you sit here, and I do, I want you to sit. I just want to invite you to close your eyes and listen to the music. And just ask the Spirit of God. To do a work in you. You know, there's nothing I can say that will make the same difference than if the Spirit of God would work in you. Amen. So as the music plays, I just want you to spend some time talking to the Lord. If we can pray with you, I would love to do that. I'm up front, Jerome's up front, Pastor Tim's in the back. We would love to pray with you. You know, we try to say this every week, like, we don't have time for the games. Some of you are facing difficulties in your family, in your friendships, in your own life. And they're real. And we just want you to know as a church family that we love you. We want you to know that Jesus loves you. That he's forgiven you. And he wants to hear from you. So let's just take a few minutes as a church family in the silence. As the music plays. To talk to him. And then in a minute or two I'll come back up. And I'll pray for us. And then we'll sing again. So just take a couple minutes to yourself.
invite you to stand with me. We're going to sing here as we go out. But I want to leave you in light of Romans 2. I want to leave you with a psalm that just as we sing might rest over your heart and soul. Like oil on your brow. Psalm 32, 1 and 2 says this. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven. Whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity. And in whose spirit there is no deceit. Your love, church. You're loved by God. You're loved by us. And I pray that as you leave this week, that you would know that. And that you would share that. Amen. Let's sing this out as we go. As we go into this closing.